Punks. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the podcast. My name is Emmett Wachowski Eldred, and I'm one of the regular hosts of the show. We have a really special treat for you today. I sit down for an interview with Samuel Sarpia, former moderator for the Church of the Brethren, as well as a church planter and a community organizer with a really long history of peace building, nonviolence, and conflict transformation all around the world. Today, we're discussing Samuel's new book, The Highest of All Mountains, A Guide for Christians Seeking Peace. It's a great conversation, and it's a terrific book, and I hope you enjoy. All right, so your book, uh, The Highest of All of All Mountains, A Guide for Christians Seeking Peace and Becoming Peacemakers. Samuel, welcome to the Dunker Punks podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Amit, for having, having me. Um, this is the second time that you've appeared on the podcast, but it's been a sec- uh, several years since then. Last time we talked to you, you were um, coming into your term as moderator of the Church of the Brethren. So um, either for those of our listeners who weren't listening at that point or aren't familiar with you or just want to know what you've done since, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, since serving as a moderator for the Church of the Brethren, uh, after following annual conference 2018, I took a year off. What I mean by a year off, not a year off of ministry, but I took a year to South Africa with my family. Uh, because my kids have been growing up in the stateside and haven't been able to connect with my family in South Africa. And so my that's my mother-in-laws and brother-in-laws and all of that, even though all my kids are born in South Africa, but uh, this, the oldest left South Africa when she was three. And by the time we went back, she was 16. So it's sort of a long time. And so uh went to South Africa for a year, hoping that I would just take a, uh, after a year as a moderator, you travel and, you know, the crisscross of the denomination. So in that one year while in Cape Town, I thought I was taking a break, but actually it opened up a whole new uh, vista of ministry. And, you know, South Africa has, despite the fact that apartheid has been uh, uh, over and done with about 25 years ago, uh, 
uh, but still the remnant of what history years of apartheid has done continue to linger. So I traveled to the Eastern Cape and spent a lot of time with the provincial parliament there, uh, helping them navigate how do we do conflict transformation in a post-apartheid, in a post-truth and reconciliation in uh, 21st century, whereby the, uh, the, 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 the first generation of born free are coming into adulthood. And so that's what I, one of the things that I did. And then travel a couple of times to Nigeria, consulting for the Nigerian government on how to deal with the radical Islamic Boko Haram. Uh, because I think the Nigerian military and this, uh, the uh, military power and the government is coming to the end of their road, realizing that uh, the military might is no longer working. The bomb, the more they bomb terrorists, the more terrorists have been made. So I think they have come to that point. I hope so. And so they invited me for consultation uh, with all the security chiefs, the National Orientation, uh, National uh, Security Agency, the police, the army, and the director of uh, special service. So I did that consulting for them and had scheduled a second consultation, which I did. And then the third one was supposed to be bringing stakeholders together, which is including some of the radical Islamists uh, to the conversation table. It may not be directly them, but people that are kind of working alongside in grassroots with them. And then uh, COVID. And so since COVID, that has come to a standstill uh, since you know public meetings and gatherings have really come to a standstill. So that, is, that has been a nutshell of the last three years of my life. Right. And that uh, those three years of doing um, such important peace building and conflict transformation work come on the heels of a whole career of doing that in a life that's brought you from Nigeria to South Africa to Hawaii to Rockford, Illinois. Um, and at that point, you became the moderator for the Church of the Brethren for a year as well after planting a church. Um, so I was curious if you could talk just a little bit about that background as a as a peace builder and minister and conflict transformer as well. You know, growing up in Nigeria, in northern Nigeria, where northern Nigeria, I use the word northern Nigeria so that because the tendency is when I say I'm from Nigeria, people just imagine 51 percent uh, predominantly Christian. Northern Nigeria is Christians are in the minority. And so that's the region that I come from. So I grew up with a little bit of a background against the backdrop. There was always a religious kind of uh, tension, but that never really escalated. But somehow uh, growing up, every so often there will be a sporadic conflict here. And I did tell a little bit of that story in my opening chapter of the book about, uh, oh, I'm blanking myself, in the last healing, uh, uh, the conver Peter's conver conversion. So I kind of lay Peter's conversion with my own personal journey of spiritual uh, conversion and sense of a call into peacemaking. But I, I started in Nigeria right after college. I got a sense of call to ministry. I did inner city ministry in Nigeria. Uh, but I was doing a lot of reconciliation, but I did not have the word to kind of the vocabulary because I was reaching out to kids that are run away at home, uh, prostitutes and drug addicts. And some of these prostitutes and drug addicts were, were in this business against their will because they were pimps that's uh, holding them. And that nature of work took me, so I was first reconciling the 
quest was to reconcile them to God, to society, and to their families. And that kind of work took me all the way to Europe, where I lived in, in the Netherlands for a couple of years, uh, reconciling African immigrants that are being trafficked. Uh, today, we use the term modern day slavery, but at that point, we only know is pimps and uh, drug uh, cartels. This is before the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. And so, and then ended up in South Africa, where I met my beautiful wife. And of course, you know, they say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, right? right. <laughs> so, so I found one and kind of instead of leaving South Africa, I did not. Uh, but rather, I was confronted with the existential reality of post-apartheid. Mm -hmm. And the city that we live in is called Jeffreys Bay. And it's a city that's pretty much very much, pretty much divided according to race. Uh, it's a very touristy town uh, with minority, with uh, not minority, with the minority population, which is the white Africanas, basically living on the 80% of the land and basically owning all of it. But I didn't see that as a hindrance. I did some work of peace building and reconciliation and developed uh, what we call a community empowerment center. Uh, I didn't have, this is not included. I don't think it's included in my book, mm -hmm. but I developed a peace uh, community empowerment center where it has become a hub for racial reconciliation uh, till date. And so one of the joy of traveling back to South Africa is to take my daughters to see uh, a place that I started and it's still very much up and going and have taken a life of its own. And then on, up to then moving to Hawaii to work with YWAM. And then while in Hawaii, I had a call from the Church of the Brethren to plant a church in, in Rockford, Illinois. So that's kind of where my peace journey has taken me. And I will say uh, my intersection of beginning to find real vocabularies to say, oh, this is the journey that I have been on, I've been in Rockville. Right. Um, that's great. And uh, that background that you have, that vocabulary along that journey certainly kind of forms the foundation for the book that you've written. Um, can you tell me just a little bit first um, why you wrote this book, what, what led you to write it now, and um, if you want to give a short elevator pitch about what the book is and, and why people should read it? Actually, I didn't set out to write a book uh, because I, you know, I am not, I don't, I didn't see myself as somebody who will write a book, but I realized that along my journey of peacemaking and discovery, I haven't been able to find a material. There are theological materials out there, but most of these theological materials did not give me actually the, the, the existential praxis grip that I can be able to uh, put into practice. Just as you know, we learn how to feed the hungry. Just as we learn how to clothe the naked, we learn how to do all of this. A peacemaking, it's something that needs to be taught and be learned. And for me, the grounding for learning how to do peacemaking is to put it in a practical time in a very simple way that people can be able to grasp. So I ended up writing this book, uh, The Highest of All Mountain, a guide for Christians seeking peace and becoming peacemakers. It is technically, uh, it's not a, there's, there's no technical term about it. It's simply a guide that will be able to help you and your community or anyone that is seeking to see how can I make peace in my own community. Uh, here, this book then serves as a model 
that you can take whatever you uh, the experience here and the story that is overlaid uh, along the biblical uh, narrative of all of this and contextualize it in your community. But first of all, when I began to think of uh, putting this book down, uh, the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 2 was actually at the backdrop, and that is where the title of the book came from, The Highest of All Mountains. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 2, uh, the prophet Isaiah had a vision of God's mountain. And this mountain, in the it says, in the last days, the Lord's mountain will be established. And for me, my understanding, my, my, the, the revelation I got out of this is, can we, and, 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 and before I get to my revelation, Isaiah then went on to say that uh, on this mountain, nations will stream to it. They will turn their swords into plowshare and turn their uh, uh, spears into pruning hook. So that, and the, re the reason is they're turning their attention towards this mountain where they will learn the peace of God, where they will learn the shalom of God. And so for me, tell, writing this book is like, okay, we, as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we need to be raising up the mountain of peacemaking so that all those that are using weapons of war, they can be able to turn that weapons of war into a weapon of peace, just like the, uh, the narrative in the Isaiah, the prophet. Yeah. Right. Um, and as you, I think, are really getting at there, um, you begin by, by kind of talking about how um, this, this might be an ideal of the church, but it's not always something that the church lives up to very well. And, and that's part of why we need to, to find ways like this to, to make a, 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 an actual applicable practice out of it. And I think you just have this beautiful, um, this beautiful thought at the, at the very beginning of the book where you, where you say you thought that the way that you enter the garden of Gethsemane to have an encounter with Jesus is either yeah. as Peter or as Malchus, um, meaning either you enter as Peter with your sword concealed and ready to use if you need to use it, or you enter as Malchus with your sword actively brandished and, and waving it about. But what you realize is in fact, it's not, that's not the case. Rather, when you leave the Garden of Gethsemane after having an encounter with Jesus, you can either leave it as Peter um, with his sword still being used, having been rebuked by Jesus for using it, but ready to deny Jesus again and, and, and use violence if he needs to, or you can exit as Malchus did, um, having experienced the, the forgiveness and the healing touch of Jesus and, and not having that, that sword anymore. Um, so I, I'm curious with that backdrop, why are so many Christians um, either unwilling or unable to hear and embrace Jesus' message of peace and nonviolence? And, and how can we help Christians and ourselves have that encounter with Jesus that teaches us about, um, about going forward from that encounter, embodying a spirit of nonviolence? Yeah. And that is why I say, I, I preface earlier on by saying, just as we learn the core, the basis of Christian discipleship is peacemaking. But oftentimes peacemaking is not at the forefront. Peacemaking and nonviolence is not often at the forefront. Uh, peacemaking and nonviolence is relegated to a lot of people. When you say you're a peace, uh, you are into peacemaking, they think that, oh, you're one of those people that just want to be the doormat. Being a peacemaker does not make one a doormat 
but rather it is active, it is engaging, it confronts the, 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 the system of injustice, it rights the wrong by creating an avenue whereby uh, a, a platform where those that have been wrong are being right, are being right. And those that, and it is done in the love of God, just like Peter rebuking, uh, Jesus rebuking Peter and saying to him, put down your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And we see in the story of Peter, uh, when you follow Peter's journey, and I did talk about his three conversions, when you see that was a conversion moment for Peter, because he taught defending the gospel, defending this Jesus, defending Messiah, which in my own personal life growing up, I was taught in the boys' brigade that you defend the faith as if Jesus is not, a, is not big enough to defend himself. And so, so I have to learn what does it really mean to defend the faith? by not using my sword. And we see down the road, uh, Peter had this encounter and he ended up in Cornelius' house where he had to eat with this Roman general. So here is Peter who is defending Jesus. Now Peter is stepping out of the comfort zone to bridge into a relationship of reconciliation. Uh, and, and in that reconciliation, it's so beautiful to see Peter, who is from a lower class, and this Roman general from a higher class. There's a socioeconomic mix here. Peter, who is Jew, uh, the, the Roman, who is an oppressor. There's this beautiful mix that happened as a result of the journey, the conversion process of Peter. And I am of the opinion, or I'm convinced, that when Christians have a genuine conversion into peacemaking, we will find ourselves becoming city on a hill that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount that cannot be hidden. Right. And there's there's a real, I think, um, graciousness or generosity that you extend to Peter even in that moment where you kind of note that um, um, Peter, you know, Peter undergoes these second and third conversions only after having spent three years at the side of, of Jesus, where he's he's been a part of Jesus's life and ministry for three years. And it's only nearly at the end of Jesus's life where he has this second conversion of understanding more deeply about um, nonviolence and forgiveness. And after Jesus's death, until he has this third conversion at, at Cornelius's house. Um, so there's just this kind of, there's this kind of grace that you can extend to, to other Christians that there's this, um, there's this un the unfolding process of discipleship that we're not going to necessarily get it right away, but if we continue to have these this openness to these encounters with Jesus, that we can um, we can begin to to have you know that that more textured and, and nuanced sense of of who Jesus was and what it means to be his disciple. So, with that in mind, what are some of the ways that um, Christians who you know earnestly want to be disciples of Jesus and have struggled to to experience those second and third conversions, um, how how can they cultivate those conversions within themselves? How can they um, seek to be disciples and, and continue to to grow in their faith in that way? You know, we know discipleship discipleship in itself is a journey, mm -hmm. and it's not a journey that it's happened one in uh, that can happen that uh, that that have a destination. It's a journey that we continue all along for the rest of. Uh, existence as humans. Um, when you see the story of Peter here, and you rightly, you pointed correctly, P 
Peter had been with Jesus for three and a half years. As long as we remember the ministry of Jesus, he was one of those early disciples. But he still didn't even get it. After Jesus died and was kind of doing his ministry for the last 40 days before he ascended, Peter kind of gave up. And even after his second conversion, he gave up and said to his buddies, dude, I'm going back fishing. Uh, this it seems like this Jesus deal has failed. And it was after Jesus came back to him and said, Peter, do you love me more than this? And Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me? Peter is thinking, yeah, I love you as, as a friend and then as a brother. And then Jesus is asking, do you love me unconditionally that you can lay your life down for me? And when he had that, that moment with Jesus, he said, yes, I love you. And so Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so the journey into peacemaking is not a once in a once in a lifetime encounter. It is the core of Christian discipleship. And I, I outline it in multiple facets here in my, I said in the core of Christian discipleship lies in uh, knowing that peacemaking is part of it. We cannot grasp the gospel until we understand that the gospel is, and it's, it's replete with the longing for peace because all that the gospel from, not just the gospel, from the whole of the Bible, from creation to the new creation is God longing to reconcile and to make peace, reconcile man to have peace with God and peace for eternity. Yeah, and you 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 set that against um, two theological problems that often um, people encounter when they're trying to understand what it means um, to be fully to fully embody that gospel of peace. And so, one you you mentioned is the the sense that peace refers only to inner peace or peace with God, as opposed to some sort of broader understanding of peace that encompasses interactions with other people. Um, and second. Um, the idea that even if peace is about a broader, uh, you know, sense of uh, a situation of peace, there are still people who think that peace is merely the absence of conflict or the abstinence from war without, um, without seeing violence and therefore nonviolence in, in kind of a more full, fully embodied context. So mm -hmm. where do you think that those um, misconceptions come from and what do we need to do to, to move past them? I think the misconception comes a lot from our theological uh, gymnastics that we pick and choose what scripture appeals to us and what does not appeals to us. I think it is both an uh, peace being embodied is that it's not the absence of conflict, but the presence of justice in the midst of conflict. That even in in a in a conflicting situation, you are able to look beyond the conflict and reimagine what does the kingdom of God look like, or what can the kingdom of God look like in the midst of this. And that is why there are multiple avenues. I like in my book, I talk about hospitality as a method to peacemaking. And sometimes we don't see hospitality we it it's on you unheard of to hear that hospitality is a tool is a method to peacemaking uh and in that i enumerated the different kinds of hospitality that we talk about and you uh the host just the normal hospitality uh radical hospitality and untamed hospitality and in each of this hospitality i talk about it 
in, in great detail about what does it really mean. Uh, we see in the story of the radical hospitality, a church in Indiana and a church in Denver, uh, who decided to go way out of themselves to express that in as much as uh, this conflict of uh, with uh, ICE, Immigration and Custom Enforcement grant to just arrest people that are and detain people, they will radically go out of their way and make their church a place of safety. And uh, we see that with the expression of the cities. These are not even churches, these are cities. Cities declaring themselves sanctuary cities. And then all of a sudden, the question that I'm asking is, where is our discipleship? I think the church should be leading in becoming a place of a hospitality for those that are disenfranchised in multiple fronts. And in doing so, we will be describing to those that are disenfranchised what it really means to be a peacemaker. Right. As you, as you point out, a lot of a lot of people today hear the word hospitality and they and they mainly think of the word politeness, like you're friendly and, and welcoming, but it, it's kind of at a, at a surface level. And you're talking about a much deep, deeper uh, a form of, of hospitality. Uh, you've described you know, one specific issue related to immigrants and refugees, which you talk about in the book, but I'm, I'm curious from maybe a broader, if we step back um, and not just ask, um, how can we practice hospitality, but talk a little bit more about why is it like, why is hospitality so essential to the idea of being a peacemaker? What, what is it about hospitality specifically that makes it such a uh, central practice? The, the one apart, it's, this is not from my book, but the central piece of hospitality that makes it a core uh, component of peacemaking is the hospitality, is the recognition of the humanity of the other, in, uh, of, of, of the humanity in the other. Because when you are willing to go out of your way to be able to show hospita hospitality and be hospitable, not just be polite, but really, and, and in my book, I give the story of Abraham and, uh, and how he went way out of his way to entertain angels as, uh, in his hospitality. And what ended up happening is as a result of that, he became an intercessor. He interceded then for uh, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So you see, he, he had no clue that his hospitality will lead these angels to tell them what the Lord is about to do. So in our radical, in our radical way of hospitality, when we show hospitality, not only to the people that we know can pay us back with hospitality, not only to the people that look like me or uh, come from the same socioeconomic or educational class as me, if I just show hospitality to anyone, Rad, the radical kind of hospitality that Jesus calls us to, I tell you, the tendency is it will win them over. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, I just came, I literally just ran, wiped off all the sweat that I've been sweating out here. Uh, I'm involved with a church that we run a food bank in, 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 in Dunham, Quebec. Uh, and the food bank is you come and, it's grocery store, you come and shop for free once every two weeks. And we get, uh, you never know what you get, but we get fresh produce. Majority of it is fresh produce uh, from all the Lufa farms and around uh, the city of Montreal. But what happened is, you know, I don't, I'm still learning French, right? And this is predominantly a French region. Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, in the last year since I vol started volunteering as part of our church, what I've seen is because of the act of hospitality that we have shown to this community, and most especially with COVID affecting quite a lot of people, we have seen, uh, first it was older people that are people that are socioeconomically challenged based on welfare. And now we're seeing a generation of millennials bringing their kids. And now we are creating a place that their kids can play while they go shop for groceries. And I know it doesn't sound like that's hospitality, but this is against the backdrop of all the COVID restrictions. And we do it with social distancing and create the environment going out of our way. We know that when we express this, we're not doing it because we want to convert these people. We're doing it because it's part of the radical uh, Christian discipleship of being hospitable to your neighbor. And I happen to find this church doing it and I have been doing it uh, since October. And um, you also talk in the book about how, I think, I think that this is below the surface of what you just said, that um, hospitality can transform you as much as it transforms the people to whom you extend it. Um, and you talk in the book in, in many ways about the, the, the transformations that you yourself have undergone. Um, mm -hmm. One that I, I want to talk about and, and hear your accounting of and perspective on is the way that, that moving to the United States changed your ideas both about America itself and also about your ideas about race. Um, so could you describe some of, the, some of the experiences that you had that you talk about in the book or otherwise? You know, in there's this ideal American dream, the dream, the picture that is being presented to us, and it's got a, some uh, colonial uh, nuances attached to it. That um, and and truly, I this is by no means saying America is a bad place, but the ideal that we have as uh, Africans is if I get to the U.S., everything will be different. But the existential reality is is not. So the reality, the, the reality for me is after I arrived uh, the U.S. and most especially uh, the Midwest, I realized that the preconceived idea that I've had of uh, the African American and the American community, I have to God had to really work on me to bring in my own personal transformation, because I had this idea, uh, like I said, I'm going to read a. a, a, a paragraph in my book, I say, moving to the Midwest and Rockford, Illinois in particular, I was confronted with another sword again, which I had to put down. When I moved to Rockford, I intentionally planted a multiracial church, but my goal is to make this racial diversity my mission. But then I was confronted with the idea, the sword of judgment that I assume that African-American community or Black Americans are in the struggle that they are because they are choosing to remain in it. And that is, a and I say this cautiously, I don't want to speak for all of Africans in diaspora, but majority of Africans in diaspora, because we have never experienced, even though we've experienced colonialism, we've never experienced the art of being subjugated into slavery. Our ancestors were never subjugated into being in a country that you can never clearly call your country, your home. I'm going a little bit over the top here, but I realized that I had to come to that realization that the African-American, I am judging them in a way that is not right. So on coming to terms with that, uh, because I have no Jim Crow experience. Mm -hmm. I have no uh, 
uh, civil rights movements experience. All that I know is I read in books and I watch on TV. And you know, sometimes you think that you know it all by just reading and watching. People's in-depth experience is much more deeper than meets the eye. And so when I came into this reality, I had to repent of my own judgmental attitude towards uh, uh, my African-American. But then the, re the, the crux of the matter happened to me when when a white police officer looks at me, he does not differentiate African-American or an American or an African. All of us falls into the same crowd. So I had the ex my own first-hand experience of racial uh, treatment happens in Rockford. That was my really first encounter with racism. And I was confronted with the, with the reality that it does not matter. I, my blackness is just, I'm just as African-American as any other African-American here. And so when that happened to me, it became a week, another wake-up moment for me to realize. So this discipleship, this journey of, of peacemaking, it's a journey. It, it's Like I said, it's a journey. So there's layers and layers that we will continue to work on. And so uh, that led me to realizing that I think I can be able to understand a glimpse of what my uh, uh, minority, what the minority community in the U.S. is going through, and I'm able to. That allowed me to be able to navigate some of that to begin to see. Okay, how do we overcome this? How do we raise the level of uh, equality without necessarily saying I take down from the big uh, from the big guy, but rather lift everybody up uh, to a certain level that we are, we have an equal voice. Yeah. Something that was really striking um, about this portion of the book for me, uh, reading as a white person, um, was the idea that um, here you have you, Samuel, writing so uh, honestly and openly about how you were wrestling with um, misconceptions and prejudices that you yourself brought because you you came from a, a different um, background and and you had a certain assumptions that that turned out not to be true, especially in light of the own experiences in encounters that you had with racism that that showed you that the, the deeper reality and, and you were really tough with yourself and honest with yourself about confronting that. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of white people within the church um, aren't willing to undergo the same process of self-interrogation and thinking through their own, the, the, the fingers and the hands that they've had in racism or the, the, the unquestioned assumptions that they bring to the table. I thought you embodied it with such grace that I hope it serves as, as a as a great model, but um, I'm curious specifically. You you mentioned that this this was the sword of judgment that you had to to put down, and I think throughout this book you're really cataloging the swords that you've carried at different times in your life and consciously decided to put down. And so many of us struggle even to know what those swords that we're carrying are. So how mm -hmm. do we how do we catalog them? How do we identify them and, and how can that help us make the decision to then put them down or even better to turn them into plowshares? I think for uh, white American, one of, and for brethren in particular, mm -hmm. one of the swords that we carry is sometimes we, we, we say we are in alliance with uh, those that are being oppressed, but we are in alliance only on the outside. Are we willing to put ourselves in the shoes of the person that is being oppressed. And so we carry those swords, but it's not we, it's not overt, it's very covert. Mm -hmm. 
And so uh, in order to be able to deal, to kind of put down that sword, one of the call that I'll call my fellow uh, brothers in Christ is the fact that you need to ask yourself, when you hear those snarky comments being made, how do you feel about those snarky comments? When you hear somebody use the N-word or they use uh, the word, all the, the derogatory term to describe minority, how does that make you feel? Are you able to address it or you say, mm, they're not saying it to me, so it doesn't bother me. And so those are those in itself are swords. And how do you, how are we intentionally or consciously making choices of investing our finances where it will empower a minority? Uh, you know, how are we uh, intentionally even buying houses in neighborhoods that speak to the truth uh, that is not just, we just look for the same neighborhood that we all, our ideal middle-class neighborhood, but we intentionally seek to invest, seek to push investment in neighborhoods that have been marginalized. And in so doing, you recognize, you by when you do that, you're putting down swords. And I'm not saying this is easy. It's challenging. Uh, it is a journey that calls for a lot of soul searching. But at the same time, I don't want to say, I'm not trying to put a burden on somebody and say, oh, all white people are guilty of this because then I'll be casting aspersion on all white people. But the truth is we all, this is my sword as an, uh, as an African, and here am I wrestling with it in, a, in, in an American community. And my hope is that Americans will take it, take my story and say, are there swords in my own uh, lives that I need to uh, let go and embrace the new? Because when we do that, we will see the change that we actually change begins in the inside of us and then it manifests in the outside. Yeah. Right. And um, and so you you echoed the call that um, Dr. Martin Luther King um, voiced for a revolution of values to overcome um, what he identified as the giant triplets of racism, militarism, and materialism or, or capitalism. Um, yeah. And and specifically working within that call, you you describe your work using the Kingian nonviolent framework. Um, yeah. I'm curious if you could describe a little bit about what that, that framework is and, and maybe give the example of how you employed it with your work in Rockford. Okay, I will give you two stories. Uh, one story will be, and they're all intertwined, but they are directly, they are directly, they are intertwined, but they look like they're two separate stories. Mm -hmm. But the goal is uh, to address an issue of injustice. In 2009, two white police officers shot a teenager in the basement of a church. Uh, and an African-American teenager in the basement of a church next to a daycare with about 20 children, 20 kids in the daycare. And so, and I watched my city went up in flames. We had, uh, you know, all the regulars, the Al Sharpton, the Jesse Jackson, the CNN cameras and all of that were there for just that one week. After that, they're gone. And so I begin to I began a soul searching. What does the Church of the Brethren? Because as brethren, I ask myself, what does the Church of the Brethren is what will our church be known for? If our church in Rockford just suddenly disappear, even though it, I, I was just beginning, what will it make any difference? And do, I claim to be a member of the historic peace church and now living peace church. What does that really mean? 
And so I then invited David Jensen, who was a Martin Luther King protege, who is brethren, who came out to Rockford and run a couple of workshops for me. And so with, with, and I was able to gather about 20 community leaders from different uh, sectors of the society of the community. And so what the result of that workshop gave birth to this idea that I want to address police brutality, but I didn't want to address it as my going head on addressing police brutality, but I want to address it from a holistic and a systemic approach. And so I look at what is the reason why this young man was shot? He was a dropout from a middle school. And I did a research to find out that middle school has been the center of like a chaos. In, in five years, they have six principals. Six principals in one school in five years. That is a recipe for disaster. The longest serving teacher in that school is one and a half, has only been a teacher for a year and a half in the teaching profession. And this is a, a school that is 98% minority, with 99% white young middle-class young teachers. So this constant food fight, there is constant, all, you can, all that can go wrong goes wrong in that school every day with fire alarm being pulled. And I said, okay, friends, this group that now we have gone through Martin Luther King's philosophy of nonviolence and social change, which deals with six principles of Kingian nonviolence. Uh, uh, nonviolence is, uh, it's for the, for the it's, I can't recite all of them. Uh, nonviolence is a way of life uh, for the, it's a courageous way of life. Nonviolence, the beloved community is the framework for the future. You deal with all of the six prince, King, Martin Luther King's principles, and then there are steps. So I trained this group in the six principles my, along with myself, because at that point I decided to go to University of Rhode Island to the Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies, where I studied in depth of Martin Luther King's uh, life and way of organizing. So, and then I uh, decided, okay, we're going to address this issue with the school. The reason why this young man was shot was because he dropped out of school and this school is already on the police radar. And so, but I want to address police brutality. I want to address the racial uh, challenge, but I wanted to create by bite a small piece whereby we can be able to see us, yes, do we get a buy-in from the community? So within the first six months of working in the school, there's a radical change that happened in the school. And I suddenly find a voice to confront the systemic injustice that the school district was, do was doing. And in that process, I began to lobby with the police chief and saying, uh, saying to the police chief, we, you need to be trained in police and uh, community policing. And you, you probably see in my, in one book in my, uh, one chapter in my book, I talk about from community, from policing the community to community policing. Mm -hmm. And in that is kind of a flesh out, not in deep detail of all that happened. So it took me five years to run a Kenyan nonviolence uh, community policing for the police department. And I have run in that five years, I've run Kenyan nonviolence for basically hundreds of people in the community of Rockford. So it became a natural fit because now we have a common frame of reference. 
and we can be able to ask the community and ask with the police and say, we want to change in our police department and we want X, Y, Z change. And as a result of that, if it gave birth to a community and, and, and a police partnership. So this began in 2009 before the formation of Black Lives Matter. And that model, I, I, I believe, and I say this because it's a tried and tested model, uh, if it has survived for 10 years, which has become a model police department in the state of Illinois in terms of police and community relationship, I believe that the church can raise the level of peacemaking and thereby inviting all these uh, different parties to the table. And the, the conversation cannot be led by the police department or the city government. The conversation can be led by the moral center and the moral center, I believe the church has the moral center, should, have, should be the moral center. But are we? I don't know. If we are, then we are able to speak uh, uh, with, with vision, with purpose, and with a hope that transcend all the current conflict that we're going through. So this, uh, this reminds me of another section uh, from your book um, specifically on the topic kind of of maybe you would call it like righteous anger, specifically the anger that you experience when you're uh, um, facing down injustice and, and how to how to work with that and, and process it. Um, there is obviously so much in our society that we can be angry about. And, and um, this interview is happening during the closing stages of the trial of Derek Chauvin. Um, and even while that was trial, while that trial was happening, another black man uh, in the area of Minneapolis was shot, Dante Wright, um, by a police officer. Um, and both of those killings have set off a very justifiable firestorm of anger and protest. You talk in the book about how often Christians, especially the ones who are deeply invested in these social justice movements, will turn to the story of Jesus uh, turning over tables in the temple, um, mm -hmm. cleansing the temple by literally flipping over tables and driving people away. Um, and you, I think you make a really interesting point that part of the reason that this story is so memorable and so powerful is precisely because it's so out of character that mm -hmm. this isn't the way that Jesus normally operates. And so the fact that he unleashes this righteous anger at that moment adds such a power and poignance to it. Yeah. Um, and I love that point, but I think it also creates an interesting and hard tension to work around, which is um, that we Christians who care about justice, there's so much that we could be angry about and, and should be angry about all the time. Um, and so it's tempting to practice righteous anger all the time. Um, and so how do we how do we preserve the power and the poignance of our righteous anger while still meeting the moment and speaking out to injustice when we see it? I believe that I, I, granted, I think the anger that is on the streets is it's 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 an anger that has long been suppressed. Mm -hmm. And even like King say, uh, uh, riots is the language of the unheard. Right. According to King. Mm -hmm. But really, if the church can begin to. At this point, we have reached a place that we are so angry that we don't even know where to begin. But there's still hope. The hope is how do you channel that righteous anger to frame an issue to address? The core of trans conflict transformation is addressing an issue in a just and equitable way. How do you address? I, I don't agree with burning police departments because I, that kind of expression of anger 
further escalates. Two wrong does not make a right. So what we can do is we can voice our anger in such a way that we demonstrate in a nonviolent way. And I know the police will use violence, but I tell you, every time you've I've seen a demonstration that is nonviolent, the police themselves all of a sudden find themselves being embarrassed when they use any act of violence against peaceful demonstrators. We, you remember uh, back in uh, just before when when peaceful demonstrators were in DC, I can't remember exactly before the election, when, when the president Donald Trump decided to disperse peaceful demonstrators, you can see the righteous anger that everyone just for his Bible stunt uh, wherever people stand on this, I'm watching from the outside. So uh, all I can see is a, a president doing a Bible stunt, and which as a Christian, for me, it really irks. It, it goes counter to the, to the gospel that Jesus did. If he was angry, if, if he was demonstrating something else, it would have been, if he was going out to just make a speech in that, it would have been a different thing. So, but anytime, uh, we as the church react with such an angry reaction. What we do is we further entrench the system of oppression to oppress. So is there a way that we can organize nonviolently? I believe we need to systematically frame issues. There, there should be people that are addressing issues of the, the, the criminal justice system. The police is only one arm of that three criminal justice system. Uh, we have the judiciary, we have the uh, uh, prison system, and all of those are part of the criminal justice system. And if we only blame the police without blaming the, justice, the, the law courts and without addressing the injustices, the private prisons, we're only dealing with one fruit. So we need to systematically organize to address this three as one systemic problem. But what I see us doing is we gravitate towards those that are being, those that their actions are being seen. If you need to know how many people are sent to prison are convicted, you, you, you are a law student, so you know, you probably know much better than I do, but I'm reading from the outside. The number of people that are being incarcerated for unjust cause, just plea bargain, even if they've not committed an offense, uh, just because they are minority. If we do not address that, what we see is the fruit of what the police are doing. If we do not address the, the, the private prisons, what we see is the reaction that only the police. So it's a systemic approach that I will call the church. For those of us that love to organize against uh, defunding the police, we need to organize, uh, uh, not just about defunding, we need to organize against this three prong of the criminal justice system. And that is one system. And then we think about the educational system, the unjust educational system. Then we think about the unjust housing. I think we cannot give up and just keep waiting for another shooting. And then we all go out on the street. We need to organize and start dealing with all the systemic issues. And I think the closest or the best, best people to deal with this is the church. Great. Um, so one, one last question off of that. Um, you, you, close, you close the book by reflecting on how so much of this work for you has occurred in an interfaith context. And um, there's even a, a, I forget if it's a prologue or epilogue or um, post-face post um, post that, that, that talks specifically about that. And 
you know, not only is this happening in an interfaith context, but I think you know several of the examples you brought up um, are also you know education and police departments. These are secular institutions where there is a separation of church and state. Um, so I'm curious, um, what is your advice about how we keep our you know our Christian center and our Christian character as you know practitioners of Jesus's gospel of peace and nonviolence? while also engaging at an interfaith level and you know, at the level of social and public policy where maybe uh, we have to find common ground with people that, that isn't only rooted in faith, but is also about some of those other values. Uh, first of all, this whole book is laid again uh, uh, up at the whole background of this is my Christocentric conviction. Mm-hmm. And I believe personally the Jesus that I follow is not afraid of sitting with Buddha. He's not afraid of sitting with Muhammad. He's not afraid of sitting with all the other gods out there. Because, and that does not mean that uh, I should all of a sudden want to emulate. There are things that each and every one of these faiths have that is what we call a moral center. Uh, and the moral center is how do I find how do I find God in even the people the person that I disagree with? So uh, this book is centered. It's most of it is written in a very interfaith conversation, and but yet very Christocentric. It is informed by my faith and conviction in following Jesus, but he, he, at the same time it gives me room to be able to see, like the Imam in Rockford looked at. Uh, my conversation with him, and he asked me the question, what kind of a Christian are you? You have never sat down to try and convert me. And my response to him is, I don't do conversion. Jesus does the work of conversion. I represent Jesus in my ways that I deal with people, in the ways that I deal with society, whether it's government, establishment, uh, a, a, somebody of a different faith or my fellow Christian. Mm-hmm. And so when I respond that way, he said to me, really, you have given me a different perspective. And this, this imam has long moved from Rockford, now he's in Texas. And this imam and I have formed this bond of friendship. And the same with the Sikh temple. I, the Sikh temple, does the, the, the Sikh, the Guru, uh, guru Baba, Babaji, gave me a tour of his temple and he said, you're a good Christian man. I will show you what we do. And I listened. I don't think he was meaning to convert me, but he showed me all of their traditional practices and worship. And I said, but this seemed like there is an intersection here that looks so close to Christianity. How did you arrive at this? So I asked those open-ended questions. And actually, sometimes, like with, with Babaji, he did not even have a clue. He just said it's a practice that came with the guru, the founder of their religion. And so I dug deeper. The founder of their religion took it from a Christian way of doing things. So it's a Christocentric practice that has been turned into Sikh, uh, some of the Sikh practices. So I, I am convinced that if Christians can just uh, not be afraid of non-Christians, we then will be able to raise the highest of all mountains where nations will stream to that mountain and will seek to learn how to live in shalom 
because we raised that mountain. Because Jesus said, you are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And I'm convinced that the church is called to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. All right. Amen. Uh, Samuel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, your book is The Highest of All Mountains, a guide for Christians seeking peace and becoming peacemakers. Um, I've read it and can certainly endorse it, and I encourage all of our listeners to go get it. There are wonderful discussion questions at the end of each chapter that, you know, if, if your church wants to buy several copies and 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 work through it um, over Sunday school, I think that's a great idea. Um, but, you know, regardless, if you want to find a Christocentric way of embodying the peace and nonviolence of Jesus, I think that this is a great guide to get started. Um, so Samuel, thank you. And if you want to plug any websites or social media or anything else um, where people can find th this book or, or other work of yours, um, you're certainly welcome to do so. Yeah, they can find this book on Amazon. They can find it on my website, samuelsarpia.com. Uh, uh, they can find it on the Church of the Brethren website, uh, uh, Brethren Press. It's up on Brethren Press now. And if you are interested in having a dialogue for your congregation, your a small group, I am available. Just shoot me an email and we can schedule something and I'll talk and unpack some of this with you. And I'm open to process, helping community group process uh, how they can engage their community, a church group, how they can engage their neighborhood, and how they can embody this piece of Jesus into the neighborhood and the world of which we are called. Thank you very much, Emmett, for having me. I greatly appreciate this opportunity. Thank you so much to Samuel Sarpia for coming on the show, and thanks to all of you for listening. Samuel's book is The Highest of All Mountains, A Guide for Christians Seeking Peace, and I really cannot recommend it highly enough. Not only is this book easy and even fun to read, but it is rich with vital content for any Christian who is seeking to bring our faith to bear on pressing issues of peace and justice today. Samuel does a great job of showing why seeking to build peace through erecting true justice in our society should be an imperative of discipleship to Jesus and he provides practical tools for actually making it so. You can find Samuel's book at various booksellers, including on brotherimpress.com, which is where I recommend getting it. And you can learn more about Samuel by visiting his website, samuelsarpia.com. Thank you so much for listening. The Dunker Punks podcast is created by people seeking to reach that highest of all mountains, a world characterized by God's justice and peace. This episode was created by me, Emmett Wachowski-Eldred, as your host and audio contributor, and Jacob Krauss, who edited the show and creates our awesome theme music. Ali Cooney manages communications, and Suzanne Lay manages production. And Arlington Church of the Brethren and On Earth Peace sponsor the show. You can find us online at arlingtoncob.org dpp, and you can find our archives on iTunes, where you can subscribe and leave comments. Find us on social media at DunkerPunksPod, and email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. If this podcast has been meaningful to you, I hope that you'll consider these ways that you can get more involved and give back to the show as we seek to build a really impactful community. Get the latest episodes in your inbox at the start and end of every season by signing up for our newsletter by going to bit.ly slash dpp underscore e newsletter. You can also find that on the right sidebar of our homepage, which again is arlingtoncob.org slash dpp. 
You can also become a Dunker Punks donor at bit.ly slash DPP underscore donor. Even a small donation goes a long way towards funding the stories that we tell. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to hear you next time. Thank you.